The wheel of time turns and ages come and go, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth, and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. In one age, called the Third Age by some, an age yet to come, an age long past, a wind rose in the mountains of mist. The wind was not the beginning. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the Wheel of Time. But it was a beginning. The Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show. I am Caleb Wimble, and with me, as always, are Katie Jarvis. Hello. Dan Katinsky. Hey, everyone. And Keely Frank. Hello. You can find us all at Wattcast.net and support the show at Patreon.com slash Wattcast. Your support means a lot. Even just $2 at the Two Rivers tier helps. Join us at the $5 Tar Valentier and you'll get access to special bonus zodes where we talk about things like Wheel of Time short stories, graphic novels, video games, failed TV pilots, and related fantasy epics. Email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at wattcast.net with the subject line questions. We'll answer them here on the show. For those unfamiliar, The Wheel of Time is the highest rated Fellowship of the Ring story on fanfiction.net. So popular, it spawned 13 sequels, a prequel, and a spin-off TV series. Last time, we talked about chapters 36 to 40 of The Eye of the World, the first book in the series. Matt lay dying of doom-laden dagger disease while Rand explored the great city of Camelin, where he met a colorful cast of new characters. Elsewhere, Nynaeve, Lan, and Moraine launched a daring rescue of Perrin and Egwene from the White Cloaks. We also talked about episode 5 of the Wheel of Time TV show, where some of the same things happened, except in Tarvalon instead of Camelin, and mostly we watched the bereaved warder step in being very, very, very sad. This episode of Wattcast, we're digging into the Eye of the World, chapters 41 to 45, where the party is finally reunited. So, Keely, what happens in chapter 41, Old Friends and New Threats? Yeah, so Rand is talking about um, kind of everything that happened so far to Loyal, the Ogier, and the innkeeper, Master Gil, that was friends with Tom. Um, and then Moraine and the others finally arrive. They It's kind of like a dramatic entrance because someone comes running into the room and says that, like, there's someone here asking for the, the people from the Two Rivers. Right. And you just find out it's them. It's not like a dark friend. Um, and Matt is... <laughs> yeah. And Matt is still kind of going crazy from the dagger that he took from Shadar Logoth. And then he tries to kill Moraine with the dagger. Yeah. So uh, we're getting everybody into place here. We're just getting them all back together. We're not having the sort of fragmentary thing of the TV show last week where some of the characters are reuniting and then secretly reuniting in the midst of reuniting with others and Perrin and Egwene are doing whatever. We're getting the gang all together here. Things are moving. Uh, we're getting characterizations from everybody. We're getting, uh, I, I really enjoy Loyal meeting everybody going on here. Um, I thought this chapter read very quickly, very easily for me. I thought I thought everything did this week. I, I was really into them. Other than some of the hangups that, uh, that we have mentioned in chat that I'm sure we'll get into about... <laughs> About our ever angsty teenagers and their their relationships uh, with one another. Um, do we get our first uh, Egwene being really pissy about Rand having talked to another 
uh, female human being in in the month and something that they were separated here? Um, or is that next chapter? They all they all kind of bleed together for me a little bit here. I can't remember if it's yeah, I can't remember if it's right then. But at some point, one of them brings up talking to Min. And then mm-hmm. is that the first one then? Where oh, right. Ag- yeah, we got Min and Elaine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Egwene Ag- gets all weirdly jealous about it for no reason. There's also kind of the weird, though, I but though deliberately weird in the story dynamic of Matt seeing everybody and instead of being like happy to see them uh, because he is so far gone with the dagger poisoning at this point, he's like he's mocking each of them in a really specific uh, some aspect of their personality they don't really like, uh, which for both of the two Rivers women involves uh, talking about a pretty naive and, and pretty, pretty Egwene and, oh, you know, wisdom isn't supposed to think of herself as a woman, is she? Not a pretty woman, but you do, don't you? And you, and it's just, um, I don't know, it'd be, it'd be one thing if it was just one of them, but like getting into the, the weirdness of, of both of them that way. Uh, like he, 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 it's not like he then goes and is like, ah, handsome parent, handsome parent who, or, or whatever. Cause I mean, every one of these characters is described as being pretty attractive. Um, by conventional standards in, in, in their own ways. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's as, as usual, I feel like the the gender politics are the strangest thing about some of these chapters now or the most dated things in some ways sometimes. Yeah, I wasn't a super fan of that. I enjoyed that they made Matt more paranoid where he was like, how do I know that you are who say you are? Like just making mm-hmm. him thinking that like these people could be anyone. But then also making him kind of slowly go down the road of like a sexual predator was really uncomfortable for me where he was just calling them out on pretty because that reminded me of was it when they're preparing for Beltine that is it I can't remember if it's like Tom or Padden Fane at that point is talking to them and asks either Nynaeve or Egwene about like oh the prettiest girl in the group you should be with Mm -hmm. me and it's like it just like brought back that creepy moment and I was like can we not do that I think that was Tom actually yeah because he wanted an assistant for his act yeah I I felt similarly and I was sort of reflecting because I have a character in the book I'm writing that is sort of possessed and I'm constantly like failing at conveying that he is possessed. So I think it's like a tricky thing to do and you have Mm -hmm. to like just come up with these, like how do we convey that Matt is so far gone? Well, like by making him really sexist, of course. But um, (laughs) uh, I, I also was wondering what you all thought of the of Moraine like being able to kind of lift his possession so easily like I know it wasn't supposed to be easy but it it did seem like um he was Mm. really really bad and then pretty quickly he was back to regular old Matt again and I'm not sure if that's it might be in the next chapter that that happens um but uh I don't know it seemed a little bit easy to me did anyone else feel that way Definitely felt like it was easy, but I did like the way it was described. Um, like mm. the whole like pulling the knife out. Like I love the confidence of Moraine and just like the knife's like right at her throat and she's just casually. Oh continuing yeah, talking. that's such a good moment. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it 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 struck me as like a very strong visual moment with like a lot of tension there and the way like Lan. It was like a good way of just kind of showcasing the connection and kind of the bond that like Lan and Moraine have. And I really like mm. I had this really cool cinematic image in my head with like kind of the shot like the angles you could do there with like that. Shot shot and mm-hmm. just her confidence of just like staring at Matt and like trying to 
analyzing the situation while not being intimidated by the fact there's like a knife at her throat. Um, could have been a very tense moment done well. Uh, and I don't think we're going to get in the TV show, which is a bummer. No, really? You don't think uh, that'll be... I was assuming next episode, actually, that Moraine would meet uh, Maybe. Up I don't know. I've, at this point, I've given up on a lot of the cool moments from the book because they just gloss oh. over. I mean, we, we can get into that when we start talking about the... the show. Or I guess you guys already talked about last episode, but just I just feel like there there's a lot of cool moments that are just not going to happen in the TV mm. show. Everything just feels so rushed. So I don't know. Um, we get what we get with the show, but they don't slow down at all to like kind of soak in any moments. Unless it's about stepping, then we'll, we'll slow down. <laughs> plenty to <laughs> just spend a lot of time on yeah. that subplot. I should stop ragging on him. He's a, he's a good character and a good a good performance. I, I I just like I still am resenting how much of season one wound up being dedicated to a character who doesn't matter to the plot. That that was shocking. I did just catch up on that episode last night and, and was surprised by how like for trying to go as fast as they are, they're just like building in huge plot lines that haven't even existed in the book yet, if ever. <laughs> so. It is what it is. But yeah, so I agree with you, Katie. I think it was like kind of quick, like a lot of things Moraine seems to solve pretty fast. It It's mm-hmm. definitely kind of a running theme at this point. That's like as soon as Moraine's involved, uh, she says it's going to be tricky and then she solves it right away. But it's still cinematic the way they did, conducted it. And she doesn't uh, she doesn't quite solve it. Right. I actually did like all the stuff about how she's really only doing this is a temporary patch and and he and she can't separate him from the dagger we find out that the the poi this uh this was one of my favorite descriptions i think and, and um of the way that she, and this is clearly what i was thinking back to i think with shadar logoth and importing some of this some of this memory of of the the way that its magic works like a cancer in the city and and the seed of it is growing in ran, in uh, Matt rather the she, the seed of Mashadar and this paranoia this evil that is going to spread like a plague wherever he goes just as one scratch from that blade is enough to affect infect and destroy she says so soon a few minutes with Matt will be just as deadly and she she amps it up to like existential stakes she's like yeah if we can't solve this if we can't get him to Tar Valin to fully separate him from the dagger somehow and get this um, this corruption out of him, uh, it may spread to the entire world and doom all of humanity in the way that it did Shadar Logoth, which, which sort of adds this whole um, new existential threat plot line that I think we've found is kind of different from the Dark One and separate from him because the Dark One's own creatures really fear Shadar Logoth. And it's like a different kind of evil that grew there. And it's a very maybe human sort of evil that could consume everything. I did think that was interesting and a little unexpected because it sets up like basically all the chapters that we read this week, that the kind of the goal is solving that issue rather Mm -hmm. than some of the other issues. And they're not even headed necessarily to Tarvalon anymore, which uh, is interesting. So I was like, oh, okay, we have a a new problem. Well, I have a question about the, the dagger. So I think they say that like the dagger can be sent by the dark friends so is that Mm, supposed to is that supposed to indicate like why they were being chased so heavily at different points was because they could tell that he had it yep it seems like we're being finally given a stronger clear explanation for why seemingly every dark friend in andor and (laughs) and the fade kept (laughs) she she says it's a wonder you got this far carrying this i felt the evil of it when i laid eyes on him the touch of mashadar but a fade could sense it for miles uh, even though he would not know exactly where, he would know it was near, and Mashadar would draw his spirit while his bones remembered that this same evil swallowed an army, dreadlords, fades, trollocs, and all, 
And even some dark friends could feel it, apparently, she says, those who've truly given away their souls to the dark one. It, it would have drawn them to seek it like a magnet draws iron filings. And then that's where Rand relates that they were attacked by dark friends repeatedly the whole way. So she walks into the room and she's like, oh shit, like I can tell that something's fucked mm-hmm. up with Matt. He's got this thing. Are we supposed to just assume that we had to wait for the dagger to like seep into Matt for that to be a thing? Or were we supposed to think that like Moraine would have been able to sense it from the beginning? Because she didn't she... Sen- she didn't sense it from the beginning, right? She even says, she's like, why didn't you tell me I told you not to take anything from from uh from more death well that's just what i was thinking like if it's supposed to be that like you know it was so obvious to her but only once it had an impact on matt then i was like okay that makes sense because they did Mm -hmm. have an interaction right on the edge of shadar logoth not necessarily next to each other but when like the black mist or whatever was separating them and she was like oh shit you guys are fine like you go that way we'll go this way Mm -hmm. and he had it on him presumably at that point so that's what i was like should she not have known from right there or did she have to wait for it to like warm up a bit well that they I, were in I the city that, yeah. so i assume that like the city was like all it was all around her so it's kind of mm-hmm. like the stench the stench separated so if you're like in sewage you're not gonna be able to like point out specific sewage whereas if you have a trash can somewhere else mm-hmm. like she could probably smell it like right away so it's like uh probably couldn't sense it with everything else around them and they're kind of in the city still so and they have like the fog and everything kind of chasing after them so there's probably other distractions as well i think that's right and i think it's also what maybe what you said keely the alternate that that it's growing in him i get the sense that it is like he that mashadar is kind of coming to take him is taking him over in a way and that he's barely resisting it at this point and he's near and so i think it did grow within him and spread and that made it much more detectable also in addition to what you're saying, Dan, that, yeah, they, they were surrounded by it there, so she didn't really have a way of knowing. Back to, like, Katie's point, though, it does seem like this is a pretty convenient Band-Aid. Like, they haven't cured it, and mm. it's going to become a plot line later on, and they're going to develop that more where she can't fully get rid of it. But it's like she put a, a strong enough Band-Aid on it where, for the next few chapters, doesn't really seem to be an issue at all, and he seems to be back to his normal self, for the like, temporarily. I was going to say, I, I felt like there was there's a beat missing where Rand should have been, like, kind of embarrassed that he let Matt... Go, go this far I don't know mm. like I, I was like I'm embarrassed for you Rand like you should have realized how serious this was and you didn't really take it that seriously but maybe he just knew there was nothing he could do so <laughs> right Nynaeve comes in and sees Matt and he's like burning up with this fever and everything and she and she like turns to Rand and is like he's not sick you say or something <laughs> to that effect <laughs> I have like a list of just like notes about like Rand being stupid and like the, <laughs> the, these five chapters just like and Rand's a dumbass here and dumbass here it's like He's extremely hard to get behind as a protagonist because he's so unobservant and dumb and just says the stupidest shit and doesn't pick up on any subtlety at all. Well, and uh, oh my God, I just blank. Oh, um, it's it's hard <laughs> watching the show and then coming back to it because so much of what we are like, just fucking talk to each other. They're doing in the uh-huh. show, but they're not doing here. And so I'm like, Matt's literally dead. Like he's about to be fucking dead. And you're like, no, nah, it's good. I don't want to tell anyone. I don't want to bother <laughs> anyone. Like, bro, fuck it. Like, fuck off with that. Just tell everyone everything. I'm so tired of this. <laughs> Yeah, they they start talking so quickly in the show. Like they tell the dreams like the 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 moment it <laughs> happens, she's like, Oh, you guys are having dreams and in the book it's like, We're gonna wait till near the end of the book to like fill you in on this Moraine. <laughs> like, we don't trust you and everything, so we're just gonna they they keep hindering themselves. Like I don't understand the the rationale to kind of keep going with Moraine and keep on this quest, but then constantly like refraining from like informing her of stuff when it's like either don't go on this quest mm-hmm. and don't follow her and give her information or just like dump everything on her so she's aware of it 
she seems to be the best at kind of guiding through this. Well, they're they're doing and it now, a right? Like decent job so far. They've it feels like they've learned their lesson at this point. Or or am I giving them too took much? Took them credit? long enough. But, <laughs> took them like six hundred pages. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you could hear, you could feel her exasperation and finding out about the dreams and everything at this point, and how far they went. And even the show, even the show, right? They they reveal the first dreams, but then as they get worse, they're like, mm, maybe we shouldn't tell her about this this part or, or something, even without Tom being there to warn them not to trust Aes Sedai. I don't know if it's, maybe I'm again skipping and, and conflating these chapters, but Tom is brought up and Moraine doesn't believe he's he's dead either. I think everybody's uh, kind of reaching consent, consensus that, oh yeah, yeah, no, no he's, he's definitely not. Uh, and we would have heard in Whitebridge, that would have been a big enough deal of, uh, of a Gleeman dying there. So he might have disappeared, um, but he's still going to come back at some point. Um, although it doesn't seem like there's a lot of time for him to, especially as we get into what happens in near the end of these chapters. So maybe that is a sequel hook. Like I'm kind of thinking maybe the dagger is also a sequel hook at this point and this other existential threat, because I truly don't remember if there's even time left in the last eight chapters of this novel for Matt to get reinfected or for that to start spreading again, or if that is being just like conveniently band-aided by Moraine here, because don't worry, that'll be the plot of another book or or something at this point. Because uh, I'm kind of wondering with how few pages actually remain in this novel, whether we're going to get resolution of that plot line or Tom showing back again. But we're reaching the point where I'm like, wow, I really don't remember. This is, it's such a blur getting to the grand finale, which I remember very distinctly, that I don't quite remember what happens in the last few chapters here versus what happens in The Great Hunt. I'm sure the show is partly to blame for that. Oh, little detail here. Did we know that Egwene doesn't get sick? Uh, and she sort of mentions that's a line, what, like when she's asking what's wrong with Matt, she's like, is it catching? I can still treat him. I don't seem to catch sick no matter what it is. And I'm like, oh, interesting. Is that a one power thing in particular? Do we know that I said, excuse me, that I said I don't just get sick as a rule because they have the one power? Or is this an Egwene specialty here? Like, like yet another ability of these Taveran manifesting itself. Is it Egwene or is it Nynaeve? I have Nynaeve. Oh, Did I write down the wrong name? No, you're right. It's because my book conflates them in the same paragraph. You're totally right. It's like, what's wrong with him? Okay. Egwene asked and Nynaeve added, is it catching? I can still treat him. I don't seem to catch sick no matter what it is. Okay. It's like one okay. together line. You're right. You're right. Um, Do we know that about Nynaeve in that case? Or is this related to her special healing abilities? Not that I know of, because I literally wrote down, Nynaeve never gets sick. Is that nice that I think? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that was new to yeah. me. So I assume that that's what that was. And I'm, 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 now that we're watching the show, I'm constantly getting confused by like, because the, the show's inventing some new things for Aes Sedai and like mm -hmm. new mechanics and changing some of the old ones. So I'm getting very confused about like what's a show mechanic and what's the, like the book mechanic. Because mm. uh, they'll say something and then the show handles it differently or gives power or kind of shifts power. And I'm like, I, I'm definitely, it's starting to become a blur watching and reading at the same time. Yeah, something um, related to that actually that we didn't, seize on last week. I don't think we mentioned uh, Katie and Keely, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a moment in that scene with Alana in the bedroom with Moraine where where they're lounging on the bed, where Alana's eating, uh, snacking on the bed, and, and Moraine is wearing her boots on the bed uh, for some, some reason, as we discussed, where Alana asks Moraine if she is interested in making a play against the Amerlin seat, against oh, Swan yeah. Sanche, uh, uh, which is... Okay, on one level, it's like, oh, you know, that that she she says it, and, and Moraine kind of makes clear that she has no designs on the Amonese. She's not interested in White Tower politics and power at all. And Alana, and Alana sort of replies, oh, well, you know, nobody really knows what your plans are or what you're interested in, Moraine. You keep it so close to the chest. But, you know, you're probably one of the only ones powerful enough to challenge her. And I was like, what? 
Uh, that well, okay. One, I don't know. I feel maybe this is importing too much book two knowledge, but to me, there's never any indication that Moraine is like exceptionally powerful in the one power for an Aes Sedai and her specialness, her abilities to me have always come from her, her mind and from her connections and her, her wisdom, her, her secret knowledge, her, her general ability to be on top of so many things, her strength of personality and force of will. I don't think there's ever been any indication that, you know, she's skilled in the one power and she's good at certain things in the one power, but she's the first to admit she has like all these limitations and she, that there, I don't think that there's ever, uh, and, and two, just like the notion that being the Omerlin seed or becoming it is just about raw strength uh, of one power. I don't know. Am I reading too much into that? Does she mean in the abstract? Oh, you know, you're powerful in that you could command respect of other Aes Sedai? Uh, or am I just confusing it with how much people have been talking about strength in the one power? And that was something we talked about last week. All these Aes Sedai in the room and being like, oh, well, she's way more, you know, nine, nine, Egwene, like you were saying, Keely, Egwene is way more powerful than any of you. And Nynaeve is twice as powerful as that. And, and the, the rudeness you were pointing out of this constant <laughs> relative strength discussion to put the seemingly subtly put down the other Aes Sedai. Yeah, I don't think we brought it up that, I mean, I remember you talking about the shoes on the bed. Mm -hmm. I remember that distinctly. <laughs> but uh, I don't think we talked about specifically that conversation. I don't know why I have this notion in my head that Moraine is like pretty powerful. It could just be because she kind of gives off that impression with the scenes that she has. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, like she makes her body seem massive or she shows up and throws fucking lightning bolts at people. So I don't know that they've necessarily explicitly said that she's supposed to be really powerful, but it's from her scenes. And then the way that she knows things mm -hmm. makes me think that she has something like over top of the other yes. Aes Sedai. But I've, I kind of now that you've said it, I kind of wonder if Alana was meaning it not so much as like, you know, raw power as much as your ability to command people or yeah. get people people yeah. to listen to you so i feel like it's probably maybe a mixture of both that makes sense I, I was probably just getting too fixated on how much they have been talking about relative one power stuff well it's also confusing because i feel like maybe i'm reading it wrong but i thought in the books the power dynamic is swapped where Egwin is the more powerful channeler and Nynaeve, they just like mention it like that she could become a powerful channeler. channeler. No, no, no. But in the uh, book, she hasn't done anything though yet. She hasn't done anything but heal. But Moraine did say explicitly that she has probably twice the potential of, of Egwene even. And Egwene had the most potential since before the Trollock Wars, like since eight, 800 years ago or, or longer, maybe since the well beyond current recording. No, but they almost made it sound like it was like a guess because she hasn't really done anything yet to prove that. Whereas the show, they gave her that huge yeah, moment. Yeah. Um, I really, I kind of sympathize for her because I feel like both in the book and in the show, Egwene is set up as like kind of the main heroine or like the, the one they're going to focus on more. And then she gets hmm. sidelined pretty hard um, and hasn't really gotten, into, like she starts learning the one power and starts to channel a little bit. And then especially in the book, she's pushed aside and given very little to do in like the last 10 chapters. Yeah, especially, especially especially in these chapters. Yeah, I feel like in the show, in the show, I do feel like she gets a bit more of a powerful role and I get to know her a bit better beyond being someone that is perhaps unreasonably annoyed with Moraine all the time. Um, so yeah, yeah, I do feel like in the book, I, she's kind of like pushed down a little bit too much. Just to mention one last thing about this chapter, or maybe two things, I, uh, I I noted there, I thought it was a particularly terrifying line that we've had hinted at, or actually Balzaman has said this, but Moraine kind of confirms after per Perrin, who's uh, at some point we'll have to talk about how maybe Perrin's main role in, in this book, but especially in the show, 
is to just be traumatized all the time. And I'm wondering if, if Perrin has had much to do except be traumatized by, by things constantly. But at this point in the book here, Perrin is like, better we were all dead. He's like really leaning into how, how forlorn he is about everything happening and about the, the changes to him. And he says, better to, every, everywhere we go, we bring pain and suffering on our backs. It'd be better for everyone if we were dead. And Moraine kind of just lays out, uh, what do you think that's going to gain? Just so you know, if uh, the Lord of the Grave has gained as much freedom to touch the pattern as I fear, he can reach you dead more easily than alive now. Dead, you can help no one, not the people who have helped you. So she's confirming what Balzaman has claimed in the dreams that he is the, you know, he has control over the grave. And if he, if he won't, if these Taveran won't surrender to him and join him, it's, you know, he can work with them being dead and then he'll just use them in other ways because at that point they're completely in his control and he can do whatever he wants with them, which is terrifying. I think the notion that this world is setting up, that there is no longer any escape and that here there's no sense of there being, um, we know that there's no afterlife and the idea that the dark one can just rip you out of the pattern so that you're not going to be able to be reincarnated and he can do what he likes with your soul at that point uh, maybe makes these cosmic states stakes a bit more horrifying and personal in that way i thought getting that confirmation from her yeah i, I, I thought okay. that created an interesting dynamic where now to your point they can't just like sacrifice themselves for the good of the team so mm -hmm. they don't even have that option so it's like they had to be more technical and kind of fit into this kind of tight uh situation but i i don't i don't feel like the show has had like that creates stakes for the book and the book has been more explicit about things following them and kind of like the stakes of like the dark one and the dreams but back to the show i don't think they've really set up like I feel like this side arc they've done with Loghain and kind of the Aes Sedai and the, the White Tower mm -hmm. have like completely negated having any kind of stakes or things following them. Whereas the books, the dreams are constant. They're having mm -hmm. conversations with him. Yep. And in the show, he's just this like fiery, like CG dark Lord who doesn't yeah. say anything or do anything. It's like really cheesy. And it's like, there's no development of this dialogue between mm -mm. him and the protagonist. So no personality I, the, to him book, at all. Yeah. Yeah. The book gets a plus one here. Cause I feel like they're doing a much better job of actually having some stakes. They're slow, but at least there's like something driving the, the book forward. Katie, didn't you bring that up last discussion on how the dreams have just kind of fallen behind the wayside uh, as a as as an escalating threat to the character? I think Keely did, yeah. Oh, Keely. But I, I think we I think we did talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And there's so much depth to the dreams in the book and the fact that they're all kind of having the same ones at the same time, which makes it even more of a magnitude. Yeah, and uh, I, I just had like a couple comments. One, Dan, your hoodie is immaculate. <laughs> it's a gritty hoodie, <laughs> which mm. is Philly's official mascot. <laughs> um, but I love the idea that Balzman has so many ridiculous nicknames, but the like, what is it? The Lord of Death or something like that? It's fucking Lord sick. Lord of the Grave. <laughs> like I, yeah. yeah, that's so cool. Um, going back to your point about like Perrin though, I feel like him being placed with the Tuathan or however you say it was such a bad idea hmm. because they read to me as very passively suicidal all hmm. the time where they're like, well, if we're going to get fucking murdered, eh, fuck it. Like, you know, they're not, <laughs> not going to defend themselves. They're not going to do anything. If they get attacked, they don't care because, you know, the whole cycle and all of that. But it's like, ooh, like he's going through some hardcore shit. This, I don't think this would be like therapist recommended to go hang out <laughs> with these like very passively like if you know if it's mm. the end it's the end but the tuathan don't uh, don't um deal with the fact that 
there could be some kind of corruption after death like that Maureen mm-hmm. is talking about. So that's interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't think they like the dark one is kind of I mean, the philosophy, I don't think extends to kind of this like dark power and his influence. But I don't know, I didn't see them as like suicidal or kind of leaning into that. I saw it more as this like beautiful idea of like violence always breeds violence and death is part of this cycle. So it's like they don't view death as this like intimidating like end of life, whereas mm-hmm. more like right. I like the energy kind like I've always liked their philosophy because I was like, that's that's really smart though. It's just like you become energy and you feed it and you're born into this cycle. So yeah. they kind of respect that. And eventually, and I think they expand upon it in the show or at least draw it out over a few episodes. This is like idea that's interesting to Perrin because he's kind of less like uh, inclined towards violence. So it's like very tempting to him. But this idea of just like not feeding into violence and chaos and being one as a people. So I, I saw that as more beautiful as it's like they're not suicidal or looking for death, but at the same time, they're not trying to breed death themselves because they they specifically say like in the book and in the TV show that like fighting and kind of continuing like feeding into it, even if it's for your own protection, keeps violence going. So that like the best way to kind of prevent this, according to their philosophy, is just to not engage with that at all. And if that means they die and kind of go back into the cycle, mm-hmm. that's like the, the best solution they see. Well, I mean, call me out. <laughs> like- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like to- totally respect that, though, because I can I can see how that like almost seems like a hippie camp where it's like they sit around kind of just like looking for death or they're so passive towards it. But I yeah, I don't know. I, I would I would just got to push back from what I just from like the perspective I saw of just like it plays with parents dynamic really well. And especially since he killed his wife and recognizing the consequences violence have. They're trying to build Perrin more. Whereas in the sh- in the book, I'm like, why are you always so whiny? Like uh, <laughs> he gets w- he gets wolf powers. He's communicating with wolves. He hates wolves, and he's like, I want nothing to do with them. I hate them. He's like, he has this awesome ability. He gets he doesn't have it so bad until they, the white cloaks actually capture him. And I'm just like, right, he has been tortured in, book, in both. I guess it's hard it's hard not to forget. Now hard, now he has a prior yeah. prior to the torturing, he hasn't really compared to some of the other characters. He hasn't really had any focus or anything really yeah. negative happen to him. Besides some hardships on the road and like camping, he. He's actually had it probably the best out of all and has been pushed this like even though he's having the bad dreams and everything the dark one doesn't seem to be focusing on him as much and he has the protection of these wolves and this communication ability but like every time something comes up he's just like I hate it I hate it like I hate life and everything whereas like in the (laughs) show he has more agency because he's like he feels guilty for murdering his wife and everything and he's like questioning that and like I I agree it it makes him more more interesting I don't know that he has more agency though like what what decisions is he making in the show that he's not making in the book or like how is he expressing uh, that he's come anywhere as a re- as a result of that trauma he, he's not there yet though because they they hit the turning point in this last episode uh-huh. so developing his character arc is very like he has like in the books he's just whiny he's like upset he's good with women or like talking to them at least and that's his like defining character not according trait. to him but, but he, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's, like that's all that you know about parents that the others think he's like good at talking to women and then he gets like the wolf powers and everything but the entire time his character goes nowhere he hates the journey yep, he yep, hates yep. it he wants to go back to the field show he's guilty he he, he murders his wife. He's very guilty about that. He's following along because he doesn't want to stay in the village and cause everyone else to die. So he begrudgingly follows along even though his wife just died. So he's kind of processing all of this. They get to the um, the nomadic uh, tribe. I'm spacing on the name right now of them. But like, and then he's starting to question this, like the philosophy of like yeah, violence yeah. and kind of like how that cycle works. So he's getting these ideas fed and like talking to like the mother of the tribe. And then like the wolves mm-hmm. happen and all that. And it's, and it's more of a subtle connection. But then he's offering to kind of sacrifice 
sacrifice himself so Egwene can escape and like her friendship and everything she's telling him to fight and it's not his fault so now he's processing that it maybe yeah. he doesn't need to hold this guilt so now they're at a turning point where he can develop whether or not they kind of follow through with that and actually have his character rise from this and actually have a like a point for living or kind of like I feel like Egwene and him actually have a dynamic where they're she's kind of building on that he, he confessed to her if she's the first person he told that he killed his wife and she's like it's not your fault you can rise from this or whatever I don't want you dying here and they have like this nice relationship where they're both trying mm-hmm. to sacrifice themselves for the other because they care that much about each other as friends whereas like that that whole dynamic in the white cloak scene has no none of that tension between the two like kind mm. of feeding Egwene's kind of just pushed to the side in that conflict and she's not really given a lot of agency that's true because in the book it's not even her life that's in danger because the the yeah. um, the commander um it, it fully intends to let her go in Camelon once they get here because she's not you know there's no evidence I mean this was something we complained about in the show plotting for why child Valda is is spotting them out of nowhere and, and immediately there's a chase sequence even though there wasn't really any setup for that I, I do uh, the, I, I think it's interesting that you're both taking such a different perspective on the Twatha An representation uh because one thing uh, I brought up from my memory of them when we first got to the Twatha An is that tension I feel where where I love what the Tinkers represent. I love almost all the Tinker scenes in the book and in the show. And I, and I love that philosophy and I love how it's expressed. And I think Marie Kennedy Doyle does an amazing job with Hila bringing that to life and talking about how she's making the better, she wants to make the world a better place for her for her daughter when her daughter is eventually born back into the pattern. And I thought, I thought that was just really lovely. But I think the very first thing I brought up when we got to the Tinker chapters was, I feel like Jordan has stacked the decks against them and their philosophy of nonviolence by placing them in a world that we know is just crawling with monsters and, and, the, and this like new wave of e- complete evil, just total unadulterated inhuman evil rolling down like a force of nature, which I think changes the calculus against like the idea of yeah. nonviolence in the real world. And I think maybe even here, like uh, you were hinting at, breaks even further by introducing, well, now the Dark One is kind of even gaining the power to break the cycle and wants to destroy the pattern and and stop you from being able to be reborn. So so much for the way of the leaf. If nobody uses violence to stop the Dark One, then uh, then we're all screwed, including the Tuatha'an, the way that things are going here or the way that it looks like it's setting up. So I, I, feel, I feel where you're both coming from on that. And I think it's all related to this tension, uh, or at least, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm just tying it into my conf- conflicted feelings. That that feels to me where it's coming from, that there's a conflict between the purpose the Tuatha'an have to serve narratively versus the purpose they have to serve plot-wise, maybe, if that's a meaningful yeah. distinction there. Um, it's something I grapple yeah. with. Uh, that, I mean, it's a great point. I think the difference is the show hasn't focused as much on the CG dark monsters as it has yeah, the conflicts yeah. between humans. Mm. So the, the book is very much on the fantastical, whereas the show, the White Cloaks, are much more evil and sinister and kind of present in a lot of the episodes. Yeah, and also yeah. the dark friends are humans. And we've kind of stopped seeing Trollocs after like the third episode. So they're mm-hmm. not, they don't seem as interested. I don't know if it's budgetary constraints or a difference of like wanting the, the Game of Thrones conflict between humans more so than like the, the White Walkers kind of situation. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's, it could be budgetary reasons, but the plot is kind of gearing towards, and to your point about like the Aes Sedai and the throne and everything, they're setting up like very Game of Thrones politics, which are nowhere to be found so far in book one. So it's like, 
They're, I think they're leaning well, more maybe, maybe a little conflict, bit in, whether in Morghese's court, I think is maybe the only gl- glimpse we've gotten of that. Yeah. But yeah, a little bit. Yeah. But even that's more towards the uh, politics of like the realm and mm. like the, the queen politics, which they haven't even shown in the show at all. But uh, <laughs> like queens and like like the, the citizens more so than the Aes Sedai politics, which mm. are heavily represented in the show and aren't yeah, really found yeah. very much in the book. Yeah, we don't even meet. Uh, we don't even get Moraine meeting with another Aes Sedai here because she's like, uh, yeah, there's like 20 something red Aja in the city. I have no interest in <laughs> in bunking with them or getting caught up in, in their bullshit right now. I'm going to stay here at this yeah. inn. Sorry, innkeeper. Uh, Master Gill is clearly not comfortable with it. But she's just kind of like, no, no, that's all right. I, I think this is a fine establishment. Definitely befitting. Uh, and in, in chapter 42, Remembrance of Dreams, I think we already covered a lot of this. This is where she actually does the healing of Matt with the Ancreal and everybody's catching up. The main thing that I guess we haven't talked about is all this loyal conversation here. And we're getting recaps from everybody. And then at the end of this chapter is where Moraine asks Loyal, if we can get to Faldara uh, using the ways, and we're learning so much here, including that there is an Ogier run Age of Legends mail channeler created network of of fast travel routes uh, throughout the world. This kind of fantastical series of of roads between realities, maybe that, that where time flows differently. And loyal, the moment Moraine brings this up, is like, no, no, this is this is a terrible idea. This is the worst idea under no circumstances. That place is fucked, right? <laughs> like, fucked beyond yeah. all unfucking right now. Extreme, extreme uh, Aragorn or Boromir uh, trying to convince Gandalf to go down under under uh, Moria vibes here of the need to get there quickly to where we're going. Uh, yeah. So, and it, do we need to get to, uh, Matt comes down, he's being himself again, which I thought was really fun. Like immediately you can just see the, the light switch change in personality. And he's maybe the only one who's not getting wrapped up in the, in the angsty teenage bullshit here for, for once. It's like, Matt is just such a night and day, like cheery and kind of quippy, sarcastic presence again, as he comes down. And this is where we get all that dagger info. Um, I have so many passages highlighted that it's just too many things to go into in, tor- in terms of details. We already talked a little bit about the so many of Egwene's comments here. I have marked with like a <laughs> sound on on where the things are going between the teenagers here. And I do have to remind myself that they're just teenagers in this one. Uh, Loyal talking about how the trees won't listen to very many anymore and not many Ogier even learn the songs. Uh, lot, so many world building details that I feel like it's hard to get yeah. into. Most of them. Any, anything stand out in particular here that we that people really wanted to get to in this chapter? Well, there's something from the previous chapter that I wanted to see if anyone caught, and that's that they say that Loghain is going to travel to uh, Tar Valen in the same procession mm-hmm. as Elaine and Gawain, yep. Gawain, whatever. I was like, fucking why? <laughs> like that seems like one of those plot devices that it's like, oh well, you know, they're all heading that way. Let's just move it in. Like how convenient that we're gonna make you know potential dragon reborn go with. With the fucking daughter heir mm. and all of that like that i just immediately was like fuck it uh stop doing stupid shit um <laughs> but i have a question i have a question about loyal so he's supposed to be like very wisdomous and like you know knows all the things does he know what Perrin is because they point out like rand has like 16 moments where he's like oh yeah. Perrin's eyes look so fucking familiar what am i seeing and so it's like wouldn't loyal of everything that he picks up on wouldn't he know that there are those people that that can connect with wolves. I just feel like that hmm. was kind of like glazed over. He knows fucking everything else. He knows that they're mm-hmm. the Taverine or however you say it, Taverin, but no mention of like seeing this dude with yellow eyes and being like, hey. <laughs> I wonder 
Yeah, you're right. That does seem like if anybody would know, he would know. Although we do know that Land knew because he knew Elias. I wonder if there's just so many things going on now that that was like even low on the list of things to get to for him or if it was low on the list of things for Jordan and or maybe Jordan forgot or didn't think to have that particular interaction in writing this because I can totally see that as a writer the number of plot threads coming to a head in this passage it it may be exactly what you're saying that uh, that he totally just for oh yeah that would be that would be a good scene to write I should have loyal make some offhanded comment even even just like that he notices it somewhere because I don't think he did I don't I I certainly don't Mm -hmm. remember uh, any mention of him noticing it here um Though we do get into uh, other things people are noticing around the dreams, and we're talking about the dream about dreamwalkers. Moraine saying there has not been a dreamwalker yeah. in Tarvalon for nearly a thousand years, but you know I could have tried if I had known that you were all having this problem, uh, and that she can shield them all from the dreams by by staying close to her. Which turns out not true. Uh, we find immediately <laughs> the following night, I think, that Moraine's presence is not enough to stop. Oh, right, because we learn here there is a whole army of Fades and Trollocs practically camped outside of Camelon right now uh, that have been amassing over these past few weeks in the hunting down of all of them. And oh yeah, uh, we've really got to move because there is about to be another Trolloc war starting in this city. If we don't get you out of here, you're the bait. We need to get you out of this trap or a lot of people are going to die and a lot of things are going to go down very quickly. I I wanted to talk about the ways a little bit, but I one thing I, at first I was like, basically in all of these chapters, I feel like there was a lot of new information presented to us. Some of it done like a bit too like expository monologue-y. Mm. Um, and, and at first I was like, oh, the ways sure seem to be a convenient thing to pop up right now. But I, I did really like the tie-in when Maureen realizes, oh, that's how the Trollocs perhaps have been traveling and like we haven't been able to figure it out but I actually wish that like that had been pushed a little bit in an earlier part of the book so that we were Mm. more like inquisitive and like the whole crew was kind of more inquisitive to like how are the Trollocs doing this this is weird what's going on so that then when we find out the about the ways it's kind of like a a big reveal and we're like aha that's how they've been doing it Um, But I didn't feel like that was just like there enough. So it's almost like he like Jordan almost threaded it, but just didn't quite thread it. Yeah, completely agree with that. And also the dagger, like, I think we expressed this and Caleb had given us the heads up that he's like, oh, we'll be answered eventually. But we were just like, okay, why do they all know where Matt and mm-hmm. like Rand are every time? It's just like they had all these things building up, and but they don't question enough to your point, Katie. I think that would have helped. Even if he wanted to keep the reveal where it is, and I agree it should have been a little earlier, um, he could have been having those questions asked more frequently as like, okay, the, the author is going to answer this eventually or we'll find, there'll be reveals. But like, yeah, it was like once or twice. They, they get paranoid but they don't question it yeah yeah Yeah, for either of them they don't question enough why they're always being tracked so closely they don't question like stuff just seems to happen and you're supposed to at the time you're supposed to accept as a reader and that's frustrating it's like okay well like why how do they keep getting tracked down so quickly by these trollocs like they're not she's maureen's not questioning it enough like they do bring it up like once or twice i don't know i feel like Mm -hmm. they could have made that more of a pressing point of topic and then this would have been earlier because right now it's like we need to go really far okay let's just teleport there and oh look we have an 
uh, an ogier with us who can kind of guide yeah. the way. So it all just lines up too perfectly, and it's always mm. the pattern that does it. So like any coincidence, like writing, like author coincidence can just be the pattern wills it. Like, Aaron. As, <laughs> as the wheel wills, it's like okay, thank you. Like the wheel's just doing everything. Then so just, <laughs> I don't know. You can almost take you can take a back seat to everything if it's just gonna be the like the will the wheel doing stuff. So that, that gets a little old. Like I like it sometimes, and it's an interesting idea between letting events happen and kind of accepting them but at some point when you use that plot device and mechanic so much it's just like okay well <laughs> we're gonna just grab some popcorn and take a back seat because you don't have to do anything the wheels is gonna like orchestrate it all for you well and i even wrote down in my notes for this chapter like okay they've unlocked fast travel like they finally <laughs> got to that part of the game where you've unlocked fast travel and now you don't have to ride your fucking horse you know across the map yeah, yeah it I, I mean, like, now that you're saying that, I can think back to sometimes, but I don't know if it happened in the show or in the book, where I think it, Matt at one point, it's like, how do they always know where we are? In, and then it's in like, both, I think, well, but, we're yeah, gonna... but not enough, maybe. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and then it's like, okay, well, we're going to die, so we just have to ignore that, act like everything's <laughs> fine, and keep going. Um, but something that happens, again, with Matt is this, is like, Moraine said, okay, I put a Band-Aid on him, but I got to get him to Tar Valen. And then at the end of this chapter, they're like, nope, we're not fucking going there. We're going <laughs> to go somewhere else. And I was like, so Matt's going to die? Like, what? What are you doing? You just said that in order to fix it, you have to go to this big place and then now you're not going. So I don't I don't know what they're going to do with that if it's just setting it up for it to be like, oh, well, we had to do something else because the pathways within the way, like the way gates, once we got in, it was all fucked. Like, I don't know what they're doing, but I wrote at the beginning, first note for this chapter, Moraine healed Matt temporarily, but he still has the dagger and they need to go to Tar Valen. Mm -hmm. Last note, what about healing Matt? She said they needed Tar Valen, but now there's no time. That does make me wonder. And maybe this is something the show is kind of trying to fix by all the great hunt things that they're weaving in. It does feel like that whole plot line is almost being like, yeah, shunted off to a sequel. You can almost see like Jordan maybe wrote all of that into an earlier draft. And like, okay, this is this book is already too long. You cannot have this whole Tarvalin diversion uh, to deal with this whole dagger plot line. So that's going to be book two. Whereas maybe the show uh, the show writers and runner are like, yeah, maybe we can weave it all in along the way, along the same plot line and just move the Camelin stuff. I think there've been problems. We pointed out a lot of problems with this, with shunting the Camelin stuff over to Tar Valen at a lot of plot threads that are getting kind of frayed at this point in the show, but maybe they're also going to fix some things or weave these things together more nicely, um, which we'll find out uh, as of the time we're recording this tomorrow. We'll see the next episode. Uh, we have to say of all the expository lore revelations here, we sort of get told finally what the, uh, what the eye of the world is, sort of. We find out that it is an enormous reservoir of power of some sort that if the Dark One gets hold of and he's very close to getting to being enough out of his prison to touch the eye of the world and to use it, that he will be able to use that to fully break free and be unstoppable. So obviously the green man must know of this threat. We got to tell the green man just suddenly thrown in here. Yeah. Uh, very, very interesting way of presenting this character as a, I think he's been mentioned a couple times as part of the background lore, but never with any present importance. And in real life, the green man is a, a very, very ancient pagan symbol and sort of pan-cultural, not just European, but Middle Eastern and Indian uh, and, you know, like even like uh, uh, Nepalese, Borne like this figure that goes back in so many cultures in the real world for thousands of years of this, this legendary symbol of rebirth and the cycle of life uh, as a kind of like God, nature God sort of 
being who apparently here uh, guards the eye of the world or something. Yeah, I did. I did not like this like exposition dump of a chapter. This and like for, like forty three and forty four were just like ugh, this should have been weaved into the story narrative better. It felt like a third act. Like you see this with a lot of films where it's like they got to wrap up or like the actual agency has to happen then. So it's like mm. they had a dragging yeah. middle act and now it's like well this is happening so we've got to. It's like why did Moraine not realize this power source? Like if it's such a big power source and it could have been like such a temptation for the dark one to kind of reach or like an easy mm-hmm. grab it's like why is this so i i still don't understand why this is like like a revelation for marine it's like well we got this power source up there it's like why wouldn't he go after that it just mm-hmm. seems like obvious and like now they're rational to have to go protect it when i thought she was taken care of like there i feel like this book is just kind of meandered along different plot lines it's not sticking to one so it's like if it's all about the dragon reborn and keeping them safe you think that would be the focus of the narrative but both the show and the book kind of keep forgetting that but that is like the main like agenda mm. for Marine. Like Marine completely like she seems to completely forget her agenda in the show. But up to this point in the book, at least she's been on that. But now she's like, I gotta take all of you, even though it's a really deadly place. We're gonna go protect this like battery of magic energy. And this all just gets dumped in this chapter along with fast travel. So it's just like eh, I don't know. It was just like a lot of explanations and it kind of dragged a little bit. Like it's creative and everything, but it's like I don't want a whole chapter of like exposition. Well and I think this is kind of going into that like we don't really know what Moraine is doing or what she wants. Um because you saying that also reminds me. So like, okay, she said like, oh, to Perrin, like, you think dying would keep you from the Dark One. But how many times did she fucking threaten them in the first <laughs> beginning chapters when they were together where she was mm-hmm. like, you know, basically, you know, if I can't have you, no one can. It's kind of the vibe that oh, we got yeah. from her. And I was like, so, but you just said that he could potentially get them if they're dead. So you would have given her, given them to him. But she only, she killed- only just realized that on the basis of him being able to enter their dreams. She, she says that in the context of she's just right. she's okay. she's like what the what the what the hell he has gotten That's that far right. out of his prison and nobody told me nobody informed me that this is really bad okay. plants have to change now she sort of says here okay that's fair yeah i did write down completely forgot she didn't know about their dreams for, <laughs> for this chapter because it's just that like first thing they talk about in the book or in the show um what are dream walkers they're not in the glossary thing in the back of the book yeah i don't i don't think they really gave an explanation i didn't look for them in the glossary but i assume it's just like a either isodai or a channeling ability to kind of just uh get into people's dreams or communicate through dreams so i thought maybe to like hunt the bad people is that kind of what you assumed? Like that someone that could get into dreams and, and hunt the bad people? Is that maybe what it is? Good or bad. I think it's just the ability potentially. I mean, Caleb might know more about this, but I thought it was just an ability to tap into people's dreams because she mentions being able to do it. But then she seems to think that like Shaitan is also a dreamwalker mm-hmm. or showing similar abilities. So I don't know if it's like a specific label for like a good person who's entering dreams or like it's just a label for somebody who can enter dreams. Yeah, this is one of those cases where I don't think we've had any indication. And like you say, it's not even in the glossary so this is uh i think a seeding of a plot thread for the next book that i probably shouldn't spoil it anyway because i could tell you about dreamwalkers okay i probably shouldn't tell you about uh, about dreamwalkers um okay <laughs> katie you you wanted to talk more about the ways do you want to do you want to sum up for us chapter 43 decisions and apparitions where loyal explains why he really 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 does not want he, he says at the end of chapter 42 if we enter the ways we will all die or be swallowed by the shadow uh yes i i liked this um or, or i found it funny the turn in loyal's character here because he was so excited to yeah. go on this trip and he was like nothing can stop <laughs> me from going on this journey with you i don't care how dangerous it is uh-huh. and then moraine's like okay we're gonna travel through the ways and he was like never mind i'm totally out guys <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, I thought that was a funny little turn in his character. But in chapter 43, uh, Loyal kind of gets into why the ways are no longer safe. Um, but Moraine pushes back and thinks the world is in, da- in danger um, to, a, to a degree that it doesn't matter. They basically have to try any path afforded to them to, um, to, to get where they need to go. Um, and also in this chapter, Rand wakes from another dream of Baalzaman, um, and this time he is bleeding from a little uh, a splinter wound that he received during the dream, uh, which is just another like uh, real-world manifestation mm. of these dreams to kind of let us know how serious and, they and are. And this time, I think it's meant to be a small but critical detail that the splinter comes out of the dream maybe is that the implication Uh, because it then disappears like vanishes like you think from the wound which i think that's the first time anything like that has happened like he always the a bad thing happens in the dream and they usually wake with like an equivalent wound uh but correct um, i don't know am i am i right about that is that the first time we've gotten this detail of matter transfer yeah he's been injured before from the dream yeah, like, I, yeah i remember that i think it was the the one where he ended up in the maze he's been injured but nothing has come through so like freddie's getting mm, closer yeah. to, <laughs> to hurting you in your dream um but what i i wrote down i'm very confused what happened to the you know first 30 or so chapters of saying that you can't say the dark one's oh, name they, and now every three seconds they don't they don't it? they use his euphemisms and alternative names i don't think anybody says shayatan aloud here Right. Oh, is that like his yes, official yes. name? Yes, that's, yes. That's the one you're not supposed to. But okay. it still is like not good to say the other ones, but it's like saying he we must not speak of when you say the dark one or Balsamon or, or something like that. Yeah. Balsamon. Okay. Isn't that like a fatal flaw of all bad guys <laughs> that they don't copyright all their nicknames so that it's also upsetting or like powerful? So we do get the history of how the ways were created and why they have yeah. gotten corrupted which is that it was and i thought this was you know i i may be i i know this is so expository these chapters but i was just enjoying it i really like all this world building i i I really enjoyed the sort of like little micro fiction about the men who could channel after Sheol Ghul, after the breaking of, or at the beginning of the breaking of the world. So they sealed away the Dark One. In the final battle, the Saiyadin, the male half, gets tainted. And a whole bunch of the men who were there, the male Aes Sedai, go immediately mad and start destroying everything. But a bunch of them, they're not as quickly affected. And they run away to the steadings uh, where the Ogier are. Uh, where they can be cut off from the one power and survive longer. Um, and and that also stops the taint, the Dark One's taint from infecting them and corrupting them as soon. But eventually they can't stay there because it's sort of like being, it's not quite as bad as being gentled, but it's like being slowly gentled. You're cut off that long. You start to die. Um, uh, your soul starts to die in some way. So they have to leave. But before they do, they leave a thank you gift for all the Ogier way back when, where they built this ways network for them of the way gates across the world between all the steadings outside every steading there's a way gate which can be used to travel even uh and then at some point hundreds and hundreds of years later the ways went from this beautiful winding garden paradise uh, of like the sunny like world between worlds to slowly being corrupted by the the corruption that was on Sayyidin itself on on the male half of the one power and now they are just awful like they have they are fully fall like are falling to pieces uh just uh totally corrupted by makin shin i think it is it's not in front of me but i think that's the name of the black wind that seems to be this well we'll learn possibly sentient sapient parasitic being that has grown in the ways out of the corruption on the one power uh yeah so a lot, lot more we're learning here 
uh, and that way gates are all but impossible to, impossible to destroy, that there's still one at Feldara. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's uh, some of the information we get here. And that the Dark One is on yeah, the brink of so, victory. Right. And they, they talk about the dreams, though, and they make a comment about how like, oh, well, or I guess Balsamon makes the comment about how like, I've played this out with you like a hundred fucking times mm-hmm. and you do different things, different things. But they don't mention Perrin mm. if Perrin had the, the dream here. I think they, they only say that Matt and... No, he does. He does. No, no. Parent says as well here. I, does I'm he? pretty sure. I thought. It, let me. Let me see if I could find the spot um, where it goes on, where they both say they had the same one. You always do. Um, they wake up. Matt's yeah, there. Had the do. same thing. Um, I think. I think they do. I. I don't remember. I feel like they mentioned it like a little later when they're meeting up because Matt and Rand are sleeping together in the mm-hmm. same room, but Parent I think is elsewhere. Okay. I feel like it. Maybe I'm just assuming that from all the prior times. But yeah, uh, like you said, like the 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 dance of Elsmont's doing. It almost reminds me. Maybe that's because the Matrix is on my mind so much with the new one coming out like next week of the end. The end of Matrix Reloaded, uh, where it's revealed to Neo by the architect that. We have done this countless times over and over. Every eventuality, always different. Oh, you say these, you know, he's like showing all the different faces of Neo and all these different times that he has tried to do or say something different and tried to resist. But the end result is always the same. And he always winds up having to die at the end. And they've just reset the Matrix over and over. Yeah, no, I was going back to see if if Perrin does say anything, because that, that whole section then is just Matt telling uh, yeah. Lorraine that he, the Balsamon knows who he is. Um. I might just be assuming that he did because he did all the because all the other times we had it confirmed. Um, yeah, I thought it was when I think only when he was out in like the wilderness with the wolves that he wasn't having those dreams. But that's mm. why that's I didn't know like okay now that he's like has yellow eyes is he like part wolf now so he's not having dreams or did they just not include him in that did I miss it I wasn't. And sure. his symbol in the dreams is a wolf now right like the Balsamon now knows what they look like kind of he's got like these little cl- clay yeah. figures that one has a one is a wolf one has a, a dagger and one has a sword uh, for each of the three of them mm-hmm. and they sort of vaguely look like the three guys. Um, not Egwene or Nynaeve, though, because we're told here, uh, they might be Talveran, too. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, but they're not the three it, on the yeah, Dark Ones that, radar. Both both of the points you guys just mentioned are kind of like frustrations for me because it's like in the book. I don't know if this is going to be revealed later that they are and they're just kind of holding off on that. But it really feels like the book's just focusing on these three dudes, whereas in the show from the start, they're like, yeah, these five um, young adults could be like one of them could be the chosen one. And it's interesting because when I was watching episode, I think four with Josh and Nynaeve has like that whole blow up mm-hmm. ability with her powers. Josh actually thought not like he's like okay so she's like the chosen one then and they put such a stronger emphasis on that whereas in here in the books they're like you two women might <laughs> be like later but you're like you're not as important you can go channel like and be ice to die but like you guys aren't the chosen one the chosen mm-hmm. one has to be one of these dudes like it has to be a guy of course because it's fantasy and only bros like read fantasy in the 90s but like i don't know I, I, it felt very kind of centered on the men whereas in the show they're giving equal agency to all of them in terms of or equal importance in in the speculation of who's like the dragon reborn but like I really didn't like that part in the in like these chapters where they're just like talking about what is it how is it uh, pronounced Taverin, like um, having I had I always I've always said Taverin, uh, but I think they're saying Tavir Taverin. Taverin on the show. 
maybe Javier. so far. Yeah, so. I had to go to the glossary to like look up exactly what that meant again. It's like having the pattern revolve around you as an individual. So it's a yeah. little narcissistic, but it's like, oh, yeah, you I mean, get like everything kind of centers around you. But then the women don't even get that. Like I, mm-hmm. I didn't. Yeah, yeah, pulls you into it. And I, I just like how they or I didn't like how they just glossed over that with them. They're like, eh, like as of now, we don't think you're Tavaren, but like you're powerful and you could have influence here and agenda. And it seems like the pattern wants you here, mm-hmm. but we, we still think it's one of these guys. So that and then Perrin and the wolves like and like the protection they give and that cool kind of um protecting his dreams to your point yeah, um yeah. Keely about like how they've been like kind of his like guardian I don't like that they completely removed that from the show because like they use mm. the wolves as like Saitan like they're trying to make the wolves all scary and yeah. everything and not even giving them personality and names and everything and they use the wolves as like eating his wife in the dream sequence yeah and, like, this is totally off the wolves are protecting his dreams well, and they got rid of that completely that was confusing but I think that was Baalzaman making that the dream like showing the he wolves. was but that's like opposite of like the wolves were correct me if i'm wrong but like a like a bunch of chapters yes, yeah, earlier yeah, yeah. when that was happening in the books the wolves were protecting are, yeah, like yeah. kind of guarding the dreams and he wasn't having like any of that but then that's like in the show in they this, keep making chapters. the wolves like yeah, yeah i didn't uh, I, I don't know i haven't i haven't liked that at all in the show that like the wolves are such a cool fantasy aspect he's talking to them they mm-hmm. have names you feel sad when the baby one dies like sacrificing himself to kill the hopper, white cloak yep. that kind of sets <laughs> off that whole like hopper yeah it's like ugh, they completely got rid of that and now the wolves are just kind of well, there and they're speculating about because we, ha- we haven't met elias that, right who's going to explain all this or who's yeah. going yeah. to like la- la- it's I, any and now i'm kind of well, giving up on elias even showing up in in the series that he might not i think he's he's gonna be like those harry potter characters that you were like waiting for in the movies and there's like <laughs> nope that whole arc's gone like mm. just cutting out cutting out fan favorites for the sake of like kind of expediting timelines and like plot points but oh yeah i don't think he's showing up and he's such a good book character that it's probably like one of the biggest losses of the show mm. right now well and so i'm wondering like i'm kind of afraid because of how fast the show is moving that the fact that they're making Eguina and Nine of such big characters is pulling stuff from later books mm-hmm. that we wouldn't get to. So, you know, from the book's perspective right now, yeah, Loyal is like, oh, okay, so there's not just one Taverine, there's there's three, yeah. totally ignoring Eguina yeah. and Nine. So I even wrote down, like, is that like a male thing? Like, does that not happen for women? No, but it's now, definitely not a, not a know, male thing. It's okay, a yeah. thing. No. <laughs> well, I mean, even 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 in this, like, yeah, the, the, I think you're you're totally right about the pooling stuff from the, the from the Great Hunt back into uh-huh. it here. But yeah, yeah I'm just, that's like I'm just kind of afraid that like you know we're getting spoiled on potentially giant things just because the show is moving so friggin' fast. It's yeah, it's getting me nervous. Like I didn't even want to watch last episode because I mean they went with a whole different like almost filler plot thread of like uh, this warder step in, like, yeah. committing suicide, yeah, yeah. step in committing suicide and all that. But I was honestly worried to watch this because I hadn't read up to. 46 yet and i was like are they gonna spoil big things in this episode because they keep moving so exponentially faster than we're reading so i'm glad there's gonna be a break because if the show ends soon then we're not hopefully getting too more too many more spoilers than if we start mm-hmm. book two got i had a thread from something you just said keely that is now uh dis- oh yes yes on the on the dismissing them as uh possible dragon candidates or taverin candidates i think both the 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 book and like early on we get like moraine's dismissal which the show does raise is like oh no Egwene's too young she is 17 in the book uh she's not um 19 she wasn't she wasn't born the the right number of years ago and Nynaeve is too old 
Uh, she was also not born the right number of years ago. And the show raises that early and then has in episode four, Moraine is suddenly doubting that because of everything happening because Loghain is way, t- is way too old. He's he's like older than any of them. And she's like, oh, maybe this was off. And then everything happens with Nynaeve. And also in the show, they have changed it. So Egwene is exactly the same age as the three right. boys. So they have definitely like shifted up the timeline in some ways to to alter um, the reasons that Moraine either doesn't dismiss Egwene in the show or does dismiss Nynaeve early on kind of thing. Whereas, you know, in the book, it's more, it's almost more like, well, we don't even know what Moraine's reasons are at all early on, other than she's interested in young men of a, of a certain age. And that seems to be what the fades are. The fades are only looking at people around town. They're they're also only looking for that age cohort, the 19 year olds in the book and 20 or are they 20 or 21 in the show? 20 year olds in the show, I guess. Um, all along in there. Uh, so yeah, I guess uh, the last two chapters here, things are happening in the ways and they're happening quickly. Katie, uh, do you want to sum us up chapter 24, the dark along the ways? Uh, and then actually, Dan, if you want to just go right into summarizing chapter 45, what falls in shadow right after, because I think we'll just talk about them together. Makes the most sense. Sure. Too. 44, we've got um, Loyal leads uh, Marine's party to the Waygate, which is hidden in a cellar. Um, they step through into darkness and travel along winding ramps and crumbling bridges in a fairly uh, terrifying space. And then with 45, uh, they're traveling along in the Waygate, uh, and they encounter a broken bridge, uh, which forces Moraine's party to backtrack. They camp and kind of have dinner and kind of uh, sleep there the night, and then Land believes that someone is following them. So Moraine, uh, in addition to this, so Land, everyone's on edge a little bit. They're not sure who's following them, mm-hmm. whether they're good or bad. Uh, Moraine finds proof that Trollocs have been using the ways, which is a big revelation, and that's where we kind of get into the details that we talked about a little earlier um, on this episode. So where uh, the Trollocs are using and it kind of it's a light bulb moment where it puts together a lot of the pieces from earlier and then they're almost to their destination Rand hears the sound of a wind uh, or of wind a uh, ghostly wind called uh, and Caleb correct me on this one because it was machine shin which eats people's souls uh the way gate is locked, it causes a lot of tension. Moraine kind of uses her staff um, to kind of blow torches through the <laughs> yep. gate and they kind of push through and escape. Uh, oh, okay. A quick, quick note on the last ones I forgot to bring up, uh, but is relevant here as they're running into it. Anybody else feel this tension between the stakes are suddenly so high and Moraine is like, oh my God, the end of the world is nigh. We need to rush uh, through the most dangerous way possible to get to uh, Fal- uh, Faldara and the eye of the world up above it. Uh, everything has to wait. We can't go to Tarvalin. We can't, we can't help Matt. Like this is the possible end of the world here. However, no matter how high these stakes are, I guess the divisions in the tower are so deep that Moraine doesn't even raise the possibility of trying to convince the 20 something Red Aja in Camelin right now to help out, like, you know, Red, Red Aja who also want to stop the Dark One from ending the world. There's like a literal small army of the most powerful women on the planet here. And it's not even raised the possibility of bringing them along. Um, what did I miss an excuse given beyond just, oh, we can't trust, can't trust them. Is, is this really just highlighting that's how bad things are in the tower now that 
that the blue do not trust the red at all or, or Moraine doesn't specifically? My, my understanding of that, and I don't think the book gives a clear explanation of that, but uh, she's been off on this, like, at least in the show, it's two years. I forget in the book what they mentioned, how long it's been while she's searching around for the Dragon Reborn. But it sounds almost like the, like, putting in work requests where it could be, <laughs> there's so much bureaucratic nonsense mm-hmm. of she'd have to explain all this stuff. They'd want answers. They'd yeah, go back mm-hmm. and forth making a decision. And it sounds like she's trying to skip over the bureaucracy of the decision making and explaining uh, explaining how she knows all this information how they why they need to get there having them maybe need to meet as a council and make a decision and all the, all the politics there and she's like we're just going to expedite mm. this and go ourselves i'm going to take you all there and like land and i are just going to make this trip because we don't have time to negotiate it with like the red aja so that was my thinking and it, it sort of made sense in my head i didn't really need to question why she didn't want to like to recruit them because it's like that's probably there's right. so much politics yeah if there's so much politics with all them trying to get them on board and decide upon that would have taken days which she says they don't have the time to do mm-hmm. yeah it was that and then also that i think uh, they haven't said in a while but that i think there's this fear that the red aja would get caught up on the fact that there's these dudes traveling with her that could potentially channel or something like there might be something important mm-hmm. about these men and we know the red aja at least from the show mm-hmm. would try to kill all the men so <laughs> it might be more dangerous to bring them along yeah. you know they'd be going through the way gate and accidentally you know <laughs> sparta kick right off the edge or something <laughs> i wouldn't mind that in the book <laughs> i i do feel like it's interesting how there's such a big contrast between the show and the book in like the regard we've been talking about with the politics of the Aes Sedai. whereas like in the book mm-hmm. you kind of feel like they're out on their own like they're not yeah. turning to anyone else for help it's just like oh the world might be coming to e- an end and it's just this one Aes Sedai and her warder and a couple kids trying to fight it whereas in the show, you get a much like larger sense of the community and the politics. Aww. Yeah, we're kind of missing. Uh, sorry, fellowship again. Uh, we're we're missing the Council of Saruman moment, right? Where where Gandalf is like, yeah. "Wow, this is all really huge. I've been off on my own for." However many years, I should go check in with the with the wizard tower and see what our what Saruman the Wise has to say about all this, or maybe Radagast or somebody. And then goes and then finds out. Whoops, uh, this was a big mistake. Um, turns out the politics got a lot worse here than I realized the last time I left Orthanc, and now Saruman works for uh, Sauron. Uh, but we don't really even we don't ever have maybe because Moraine is more of a side character in this than. Um, then, well, no, I guess Gandalf doesn't have perspective chapters in Fellowship either. He just, we find out things from him when he's here. So it feels like we're missing that sequence as we get into the Gandalf leading them into Moria thing. Uh, oh, and I guess this is just a small thing that the show has left out, right? That Moraine uses her staff for everything in the book. And that is kind of like her focus. And it's like such an important part of using the power for her. She even like breaks the lock to get, she's, he does, she doesn't want to damage the lock. So she, uh, she taps it with her staff and it falls open neatly i guess to get into the ways it's way too gandalf yeah <laughs> I, I feel like having a staff and going through like a minds of moria situation mm-hmm. and have like a balrog thing come up on them was just like okay the imagery was way too close to home mm. to like actually yeah. have them use like staffs because it's already like a lord of the rings ripoff so well you know what it did accomplish by being so much of a fellowship homage the whole time and this whole book following so much i literally i did not remember the details of the end of the book enough to not be on pins and needles like is moraine gonna die here in the ways is she gonna stay it even sets it up that 
I, th- I thought he or she was going to stay behind and like hold the door, mm-hmm. uh, Bridge of Khazad Doom style, literally the crumbling bridge here, uh, like suspended above nothing, thousands of feet, maybe more, infinitely deep down into darkness as they all go through the door. But no, she makes it in time. She, come, she comes out the other side at the end with her blowtorch, yeah. like you said, Dan, after she's gotten <laughs> through everybody. does She does, and she does the same, she's like shooting these fireworks of attacks, like liquid, molten, um, yellow and white and red flames out in a long beam that's filled with black flecks because the one power even even when she touches Sayadar here is is tainted by the corruption of Makin Shin and, and of the ways at this point. Um it's a yeah, it's a creepy place. I thought these were really effective descriptions, like a really haunting, beautiful, not you know, it reminds me of Moria, but it's a totally different kind of thing here. Like these in, in endlessly looping, impossible kind of, oh, wow, I'm blanking on the artist who famously did all those, you know, impossible staircases, landscapes and everything. You, you uh, know, y'all know who I mean. Um, Escher, yeah. Escher, right? It's like uh, MC Escher paintings of in, in the dark, suspended above nothing as they travel through the ways here. And as Loyal is just terrified uh, more and more by everything they're encountering and how much this place is kind of rotting. And there's like holes appearing and everything and, and bridges are falling apart and ways are lost. Like it turns out the, the way to Tarvalon is gone, fallen to pieces. Um, they encounter like a really grisly scene of all these Trollocs who is like they are kind of melted into the stones. It's almost like the place sort of swallowed them alive and they're all dead in this frozen, twisting, horrible way where they're almost eaten by the stonework of uh, of the ways here um a lot of those really a lot of those character beats that we've expressed annoyance with between the teenagers being being like oh you talk to another woman and then Perrin being like oh well like wayne what about aram at the dance what about that that handsome handsome dude that you were getting real close with a lot yeah uh, i felt like i was sort of like you said dad skimming over those sections as quickly as i could um seems sort of yeah neither here nor there for the for the place that they are right now any standout passages uh i have so much highlight in all these not so much a passage but the previous chapter and then this one this is isn't this the first time she lets them know that she's blue oh it might be i might have totally forgotten because the show has had that established for so long now because like it's when loyal is talking about the male Aes Sedai that made the way gates and he's scared of moraine a little bit because the red uh yeah the red aja thought that by letting the men into the steading that they were like prolonging Mm. the the issue or the breaking um but the blue do not think that and then she's like don't worry bro i'm blue and then (laughs) in the next in this chapter she says something about we have to get to shariam or shariam Sedai, which is another blue aja in tarvalon i think is where they said he was so it's like this is now twice mm. <laughs> that they're bringing up blue for the first time well did they you might be i don't remember like when she gave there was that really early chapter where she gave um Egwene the rundown of the different colors um oh did she, she was first huh. teaching her to channel yeah they gave a rundown and she had the orb and she's like look into the orb and they have that scene in the show but i'm trying to remember i, I think it's the, the show that adds the aja to that because there is the scene with the stone in the book i don't I don't think she mentioned the Aja colors. I could maybe, maybe you're maybe maybe that's right. But I but for some reason I thought that was a show addition to that scene. I could have sweared it was. Or Katie and I looked in the glossary and found out about like the red and everything. Oh, okay. She mentions Aja, but mm-hmm. I don't remember if it was like specifically described. I remember we talked about it back then before we had mm-hmm. seen the show. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought that was from the glossary. Uh, but yeah, at this point, like you said, I, there's so many things blending together. So the first mention of an Aja in the book is, uh, for me, page 501, uh, which is 
uh, chapter 12 across the Terran. So red Aja, red Aja, red Aja. And what if she, and if she is Aes Sedai of what Aja? Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think so. Unless, you know, unless it's just not coming up in my search. Um, we learned what the red Aja are about in chapter 12. I think they're the only one we ever got any kind of, I, I remember talking about in the book early on, they were the only one we got any kind of description of what they did. Um, and they're they're holding their duty to be the prevention of another breaking of the world, which they do by hunting down every man who ever dreamed of wielding the one power. This is all the Tom conversation. I'm I'm pretty sure that was the first mention, but um, I don't know. Again, let's go. It's all getting so tangled now. Uh, Invisible climb, curve of the ramp. <laughs> uh, the I love how the end of chapter 44 is the ways were almost boring. So much nothing happened. Uh, which I thought, <laughs> I thought was a fun. I didn't know if that was like. Um, Jordan having a little fun of acknowledgement there. Although I didn't, I didn't find 44 boring personally, just because I, I was really into the, the engrossing horror of the design of this place and the wonder of it at the same time. Um, it felt like one of the more, you know, at, at this, at this point, at that point in my life, at least I hadn't read a ton of fantasy. So it seemed like a pretty unique location and a unique way of doing this between the worlds. Although now I kind of, I'm at the point where, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a trope. It's the, it's the staircases between the worlds or the bridges between the worlds um, that I'm sure is much, much, much older than the Wheel of Time. Yeah, it was uh, almost like that movie moment where he's like, things can't get any worse, or it's like, oh, it's not that bad. And then as soon as he says that, it's like, oh, well, yeah. out. Uh, but there was one, let me see if I can find it. I put like t- referencing those notes of like Rand being a dumbass. Uh, it was just like cringy dialogue, when, like when he's talking to um, the Ogier and uh, Loyal is just like all kind of hesitant about it and, and like Rand's like yeah we'll go on adventure to these places you wanted to go to and he's like do you actually think this will ever end mm-hmm. and then Rand being the dumbass that he is is like uh, oh yeah you believe it will ever be over Rand he, and he frowned at the Ogier you said it will only take two days to reach Faldora it's like are you a fucking dumbass like he's talking about just like the entire thing it's like dialogue like that is just so cringy because I'm like these are children and they're they're really clueless as to like any kind of like subtle drops of like mm-hmm. I don't know they just they just constantly are clueless about like the danger of their in or the stakes or whatever whereas in the show it all weighs on them a lot more and they seem cognizant of that and you can kind of relate to them more but here they're just like stupid kids that even in this like dark traveling world they're still getting uptight about like teenage angst about like he talked to a girl and they're mm-hmm. all just like kind of making jabs about that i'm like is this really the dialogue we're going to have like near the world's end <laughs> like oh, you talked to a girl well, he talked to a boy and like they spend like two paragraphs and then they're like having tea, but only one tea. And just like all this is like really strange dialogue to be having, like when you're in such a hurry. Like, I don't know. It, it kind of like these moments kind of slow Jordan's world down from being like faster paced. Like I, I wouldn't really mm-hmm. be thinking about like tea and kind of camping. Like they, they constantly are having these like in moments. And then the other moments are like the the camping around a fireplace and eating bread and cheese mm-hmm. and also having their tea in the morning. Which again, and having, it's just t- Yeah. I was gonna say again, it's it's no, again, it's because Tolkien does it, but the hobbits are so much less annoying than these teenagers. They're they're like really yeah. endearing, and they don't have any. Well, I mean, they they occasionally rib Sam about Rosie, but at this point, on like waiting outside to get into Moria while Gandalf is working on you know the, on trying his own torch welding to get in, it's like maybe I don't know if it's that scene, but it's probably like dia- if it's romance dialogue, it's about. Uh, Aragorn and Arwen and their star-crossed love and, and you know like the the hundred years or whatever that they've been together and the possibility of giving every of giving everything up at all I don't know it's a lot more compelling probably than than, than this uh, high school drama we're getting here between between these on these stops um, which yeah. thank God there are adults maybe, maybe, there. Y- 
and yeah. loyal. I was also similarly feeling the same way as Dan, also because they haven't been together in so long, and then they come together, and their conversation seems so trivial. I'm like, <laughs> were there any depths to your relationships <laughs> at all? Like, they're said to be, like, so close, but are they close only because they're from the same place? Or... I don't know. That's something Rand asked in earlier chapter. It's either Rand or Matt who was thinking at one point, yeah, would we even be fr- like, are these people even my friends? Would we even be friends if we didn't just happen to be the same age growing up in the same town? Which is, you know, that's a real vibe when you're from a really small but that, place, yeah, that's, but that's, it's to hang that, a whole book on it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that that's compelling. And there really could be an interesting dynamic there where they realize they're just friends because of location, which mm-hmm. a lot of people, you can tell an interesting story there because readers could relate to that because so many people have like middle school and high school friends that they no longer talk to like 20 years from mm-hmm. then. And they're like no longer friends, but they had such a deep connection to these people during their rearing and like kind of like just aging, like like growing up and all that. So it's like, that's an interesting, yeah. I, I just didn't even pick up on that at all. So it's like, they just have like trivial conversations. Mm-hmm. Jordan doesn't seem to know how to write teenage interactions at all. Mm-hmm. Even adults, he like, he, he realized both the book and the TV show have a crutch, which is, and the show I picked up on this a lot too, that, and the screenwriting really could improve here, is that they'll go on long monologues and it's like one character talking for like two or two to five minutes of the show and people just listening to that. Mm. And there's not a lot of back and forth conversation. And when you go from watching that to Succession, <laughs> where everything is about quick jabs and like kind of the, the fun humor and kind of the character dynamics, Wheel of Time is seriously scarce on having that both in book and in TV show. It's like, you got to write better kind of like dynamics between these characters and fun jabs or fun conversations. Because if you're going to rely on like, he talked to a girl and go back and forth on that for like a paragraph or two, Mm -hmm. like that's very thin in terms of like actually creating compelling character development. So like, I don't know, like Moraine's interesting, but even the show does a better job with that. So I don't know, like Jordan, I like his writing style, but he's really not convincing me with this character so far, Mm -hmm. though they're all pretty shallow. Well, and you can't have a fantasy if you don't have them eating like bread and cheese. (laughs) So he has to throw that as often as possible. Uh But also like, okay, every single fucking person now has said that Perrin is like so great with women. Prove it. (laughs) Do something. Because they're constantly saying he's good with women. In what way? (laughs) Because no one is saying anything. Um, So at this point, it's like, okay, you beat me over the head with that. Well, prove it. Because I I said in the group chat, I was like, I think Layla has something to say about that, Mm -hmm. about him being good with women. You know, they didn't have him murder his wife in the fucking books, but at least that's something. Like, give them some kind of character. I always thought that was a joke. I I thought that was like a joke where every one of these characters thinks that the other is good with women and parent thinks that Matt and Rand are, but none of them actually, none of them actually are. Um, But it also stopped being funny a long time ago. (laughs) And it needs to be replaced with something right beyond this gag uh, for for these conversations. So you you can see, like we talked about, the show straining to offer new things. And I I think it's been, I don't know, I think uh, for all our complaints about episode five, I feel like, and what you're talking about, Dan, that the dialogue is not particularly naturalistic. It's a lot, and you know, a lot of TV shows that do, and Game of Thrones often did, that one character talking for an inordinately long period of time. It's not natural at all. But I, I think those are two different styles of writing and it doesn't necessarily have to be naturalistic. There's a very big difference between like a, a quick-witted comedy uh, that's quip-based and, you know, something that has as much lore and as much information to get through density-wise as Wheel of Time does. But I do think the show has done a better job on the whole of really fleshing out um, the the Two Rivers teens, well, 20-year-olds in the show more than anything. Yeah. I've been, and I don't know, like some of that is the actors too, but they have felt way less yeah. annoying and way just more endearing in general. And that reunion get, gets so much more out of being, like, I like this reunion a lot here until 
these conversations start again. But but I thought that was maybe the strongest thing for me in episode five last week was seeing them back together again and Nynaeve's relationship. Because Nynaeve is, she doesn't get much to do here either, right? She's just sort of like grumbling about Moraine in in the background. Um, And now she's just along for the ride here. They all kind of are being propelled into Machin Shins and and the ways because they're such a large group here. Uh, well, I final... think they're they're coming across better in the show because they did get rid of all this bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like yep. if they were if they were experiencing this stuff in the show, not talking to each other about the fucking dreams, mm-hmm. about you know anything that's happening, and then also being like jealous dicks through all of this, like, <laughs> y'all are gonna fucking die. Stop worrying about it. It's like that might be the last fucking person he talks well, to, and you're gonna give him grief over. Like fuck off. Yeah, it's a very immature way of like just inter. I don't know. I know they're yeah. teenagers, but still, even for teenagers, it's incredible kind of like middle school mm. like elementary of them yeah. to just kind of be viewing interactions with women that way but they they almost seem that sheltered so yeah. like maybe if they can actually take this the first book because it, it's very like sheltered child kind of way of engaging like somebody of the opposite sex and so it's like i'm wondering if like they the next few books jordan's actually going to really flesh them out and as they get to become adults like the only kind of character development and growth i noticed in the book so far was when ran noticed that things that would have really bothered them they were just kind of accepting i think mm-hmm. it was going down in the cellar which was like 42 or 40 or oh yeah we're just breaking and entering into this where, random house using using yeah he's power. like this yeah. would have he's like he's like we would have and rand is thinking to himself that he like they would have whined and complained about this but they're all just <laughs> kind of going into it because they're like yeah we, uh, we we're taking this part for the course so it's like oh look a little character development rand's not bitching about everything when they like he's told to do something by like moraine they're actually it was kind of nice they don't have these like hold like pump the brakes Nynaeve or Rand is going to complain about something and then we're going to do it anyway. It's like, okay, they're just getting mm-hmm. along and doing it. So I, that was a nice little bit of like sprinkling some like character development for Rand. He's becoming a little more mature, but he still is super immature with any conversation around women. Mm-hmm. And not, like uh, uh, Egwene is just like such a terrible arc in the book versus the show where they actually have a relationship mm-hmm. already. And he's worried about her and seeing her again and everything was just a lot more realistic or I don't know, easier to digest. Well, Maybe some hope on the horizon. Speaking of the next book, where looking at the stats, uh, the Great Hunt uh, is only four. Only forty percent of its chapters are from Rand's perspective uh, in that one, and that percentage will plummet down to almost nothing in the third book. So we, so however we still feel about Rand by then, and I don't know if we'll be doing some catch up where the show, where the characters are like doing their show development in in book two more than they were here. Um, probably, probably the biggest complaint we've had consistently over Eye of the World. Next time, though, we'll be finishing it. We'll be reading chapters 46 to 53. Believe it or not, there are only eight chapters left in the book. And since the last three chapters are really short, we just decided to go right ahead. So we will finish The Eye of the World and watch episode six of the TV show at some point, uh, which uh, will also be covered around next week. Um, and there's only three episodes of the TV season. So I don't know about y'all. I'm excited to see if uh, and whether we stick the landing. Um, I think I may be a little, I'm, I'm most excited to see if the show sticks the landing. And if uh, we see, for instance, if they, if they tile these threads up nicely, if the budget comes back into things. Um, but I'm also curious if our, if we'll end on a more positive note for Eye of the World uh, as we really get into some of the most intense chapters plot wise. We'll find out. Uh, so see y'all then. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Katie, where can people find you on the internet? Sorry, I caught you at a bad moment. <laughs>
You can find me at katiejarvis.com or on Instagram at 30 in LA. And you may have heard some baby sky noises through this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Serenading us all delightfully. Dan, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at PansyDan. And Keely, what uh, about you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Keely underscore reads. Remember, you can find us all at Wattcast.net. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast. Thank you all for uh, the support on there and the comments uh, that you've been giving over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, something that I could notice very distinctly on the back end of things and that helps enormously is that every time someone shares one of our social media posts, that is almost an instantaneous jump in the number of downloads that day. Sometimes that means... Just one post, even if you don't think that many of your friends are reading it, for us can very easily mean as an additional 15 to 30 listeners just from a single post. So whether or not you support us on Patreon, it helps a lot if you, uh, if you, you know, just share an episode on social media or even you don't even have to say anything. Or if you want, you can you can tell people what, what you like about the show. You can leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts or your pl- 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 podcast platform of choice. <laughs> it's the number two way we find new listeners. After the number one way of, like I just said, telling friends about the show, that that word of mouth really means the word to us. That's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Farewell. <laughs>